Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. I am so glad to see you all here and to study God's word with you. I invite you to bow your heads with me one more time. I just want to take a moment to be still and quiet in the presence of the Lord and ask him to speak to us. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Jesus, we know that you are here with us because you said in your word that when we gather in your name, you're here in our midst and we love you. We acknowledge your presence. Holy Spirit, we love you and we ask for your help this morning. Our God, would you give us attentive and understanding minds? Would you give us soft, humble, believing hearts? Make us like little children and reveal your truth to us so that we could see and know and trust and love and treasure Jesus more. Pray for myself that you give me grace to say everything you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it, nothing that you don't. Please instruct us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the text of Scripture that we just heard from Luke chapter 10 is all about the joy of Jesus. We're given a little snapshot of Jesus being happy. Jesus celebrating. Verse 21 says, in that same hour, he, meaning Jesus, rejoiced. Everybody say rejoice. This is this text of scripture all about the joy of Jesus. And it says he rejoices in the Holy Spirit and his Joy is directed towards the Father. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. So here we see the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this story, we're given a very profound glimpse into the mystery of the Trinity and into the mystery of the gospel. The two go together. God is showing us who he is 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, as we meditate on these words, it will become clear that Jesus is rejoicing in the gracious will of his Father, who is happy to save us from the power of evil and make us joyful in his presence. So in other words, Jesus is happy because the Father is happy to make us happy. This is a passage all about joy, the joy of God and the grace of God who invites us to share in his joy. The Holy Spirit is here as the joy in which the Son is rejoicing in his Father. In fact, the Spirit is the Father's happy love for the Son and the Son's happy love for the Father and the love that the Father and the Son pour into our hearts, giving us joy. What this text is showing us about God is very profound. And because the Bible teaches us that God is the source of all reality, he created the heavens and the earth, all things are from him and through him and to him. That means that the deepest reality that exists is the overflowing love and joy of God. Happiness is the foundation of all being. That's that's a thought to ponder for a moment. The joy of God is often hidden from our sight by sin and chaos and death and all the destructive forces of evil in the world. But this joy is the biggest, deepest thing that exists. By comparison, all of our sorrows are small and temporary. The infinite, eternal joy that is God, the Holy Trinity, is the big reality beneath all other realities. And God is gathering all things to his presence, into his joy, his happiness. Now, having said all that, let me say this. I know some of you came to church already happy this morning. If you came to church feeling joyful, can I hear you say amen? Amen. But not everybody came to church feeling happy this morning. And everything I just said about infinite joy being the fountain of all being and the deepest reality that exists. For some of you, it already stirred your heart and you're feeling good. But for some of you, it just felt totally unreal. Sometimes it seems to us like everything is very terrible. Amen, church? So what I've been saying about these scriptures may have seemed fake or, or maybe just disconnected. Maybe it's true, but I'm, I feel far from that reality. Maybe in order to avoid being fake, I should just ask this question. Anybody have some stressful stuff happen to you this week? Uh, I had some stressful stuff happen to me this week. My family. And, hey, I had a good week. God is good all the time. Amen, church? As a matter of fact, we should do the thing. God is good. And all the time. He's good even when super stressful stuff happens. But I can just tell you this week. God was good to us all week. So much to be thankful for. Also, we visited the urgent care. We visited the emergency room. We visited the car mechanic. And we took the other car to Walmart to get the tire fixed. Stuff just happens sometimes, right? And then we had to go pick up the prescription. By the time we paid the urgent care and the ER, everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. And by the time we paid the urgent care and the ER and the prescriptions and the car mechanic... Um, I was just reflecting, you know, Candace and I made a great budget for this month. 
It was a good budget. And I was just thinking about that God revealed that budget to be vanity and a chasing after the wind. It's just nothing. But the money was flying away. There's a proverb about that. There was some stressful stuff happening. Did you know you can have an allergic reaction to a mosquito bite that makes your face swell up like crazy? And I'm not trying to get too off the rail here, but I was one night sitting up trying to lure in the darkness in my bedroom, trying to lure the mosquitoes to my light so I could kill them so my family wouldn't swell up anymore. Stressful stuff happens, amen, church? So it was good for my soul this week that while I was meditating on Luke 10 about the happiness of God, my personal Bible reading had me in the book of Ecclesiastes. Which is a nice little bit of existential philosophy right in the middle of the Bible. Here are some of the verses that really resonated with me this week. I'm just going to read you a few verses from Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1-2. If you were with us a few years ago when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes in some depth, you'll know that Hebrew, Hebrew word hevel means like smoke or mist. In life, we keep trying to grab onto something that we think can be stable and to hold us up and give us some stability and peace and purpose, and it slips right through our fingers. You ever felt that way? Skipping down a few, Skipping verses. Down a few verses. Genesis 1a, all things are full of weariness. Anybody tired this morning? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We're going through life desiring searching, seeking, and we're never satisfied. Verse 15, it's still in chapter 1. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Evil has damaged in the, the world in such a way that no matter how hard we try, we can never fix it. The text is saying. Verse 18 says, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Which means, even if you study your Bible all week and do everything it says, the world's still going to be messed up and you're still going to be stressed out. I haven't even got out of chapter 1 from Ecclesiastes. You can keep going. Chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You ever worked hard all day? You were so excited to get to the night and rest. And then you lay there with your eyes open, stressing out all night long. The Bible talks about that. It gets realer as it goes, even realer than that. Chapter 3, verse 16, Ecclesiastes. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Meaning, you could look at the court. You could look at whoever the moral leaders are supposed to be, whoever the spiritual leaders are supposed to be, the people you thought you could count on. And very often, the closer you look, the more corruption you see. It's discouraging. Chapter 4, verse 1 and following is maybe the most moving lament in the Bible to me. It says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. We could keep going, but you get the point. Ecclesiastes is true. This world is very broken. Sin and death are realities that we have to deal with. But I'm glad I got to read Ecclesiastes next to Luke chapter 10 this week. 
Because what I have to say to you today is that Jesus knows some things that the human author of Ecclesiastes did not know. Jesus knows some things that the sage didn't know. And Jesus is making those things known to his disciples and through them to us. Jesus is revealing the deep heart of reality that was previously hidden. Those are two key words in this text. Everybody say hidden. Everybody say revealed. The author of Ecclesiastes, the sage, the preacher, Kohelet, who's speaking in the middle of Ecclesiastes, says, I devoted my heart, my life to searching out wisdom and trying to find the meaning of it all. And I did it. That's basically what he says. I couldn't find the meaning of it all. Human wisdom and the human search for meaning and understanding can only take us so far. But Jesus knows some stuff that no human, no mere human could discover. And what he knows is that chaos is not the biggest reality in the world. Death and sin and Satan and the exhaustion that we feel and the frustration that we experience are not the biggest realities in the world. Because beneath all of that is something deep and eternal and real and permanent. It is the joyful love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this joy of God, this happiness of God, is ready to erupt and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Chaos and sin don't get the last word. Mosquitoes do not get the last word. Bills will come to an end. All the stuff that brings deep anguish to our heart. And I know many of you are dealing with some stuff. My, my week just had some stressful stuff happen, but many of y'all are dealing with some much deeper pain. And what I'm saying is the gospel tells me and you something that we could not discover for ourselves. All that stuff is temporary. We can be happy because nothing is stronger than the happiness of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who loves us. That's what the text is telling us. G.K. Chesterton, at the end of his famous book, Orthodoxy, made the observation that the giant secret at the heart of the Christian gospel is the joy of God. He was right. That's what this passage of scripture is all about. But let's back up. Let's look at it a little more carefully. Look, look back again at verse one. It starts with these little words in that same hour. In that same hour. And, and Luke says in that same hour. Because he wants us to connect what's happening here with what happened in the verses right before it, which we heard about last week. When Jesus rejoices and gives praise to his father, he's thinking about what he just said to his disciples. So if you've got your Bible, you can look back up at verse 18, which we talked about last week, 18 through 20. I'll read it to you. If you don't have it, you can just listen. It says, and he said to them, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nonetheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's that word rejoice again. Everybody say rejoice. So Jesus is rejoicing here about the defeat of Satan. He saw Satan fall like lightning. Evil will not win in the world. But more than that, he's rejoicing in the joy of his disciples whose names are written in heaven. Jesus is happy because sinful people like you and me can be reconciled to God because of what he's about to do in Jerusalem. 
Jesus is happy because everybody who trusts in him, despite all of our evil and rebellion, if we trust in Jesus Christ, we can know for sure our names are written in heaven. To have your name written in heaven means God says, this one belongs to me. Nothing can separate this one from my love. This one's going to be happy with me in my presence forever. That's not something you can earn. It's a free gift of God for everybody who trusts in Jesus. Isn't the gospel good news, family? Jesus is happy about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is true of you. God has written your name in heaven. Nothing can separate you from his love. I think we should just pause and take a deep breath and let that soak in for a second. Everybody breathe in. Jesus is happy because he knows that by God's grace and for God's glory, if you've trusted in him, he's going to make you joyful in his presence forever. All the pain, all the regret, all the shame, all the sorrow, all the fear, chaos is temporary. Your eternal destiny, if you've trusted in Christ, is to be with God in a new creation. So in his joy, Jesus praises his father and he praises his father for revealing this to little children and hiding it from the wise. That's interesting. Look at the next verse. It says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden. There's one of our key words. Everybody say hidden. These things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You should underline those two words, gracious will. We're going to come back to those in a second. God hides the gospel from the wise and learned. What, what does that mean? Perhaps when Jesus said that, he was thinking about the scribes and Pharisees whom he's been engaging with in this part of Luke. They are considered, they are considered wise and understanding, understanding by, by most people. They're, after all, Bible scholars. They study the scriptures. They're professionals. And yet, when God shows up among them, when Jesus shows up, they don't get it. They don't understand him. They're rejecting him because Jesus will say their hearts are hardened by pride. Paul says something very similar in the uh, first chapter of 1 Corinthians when he talks about the wise and the scribes and the debaters of this age. Everybody in the world considers wise. He says not very many of them have actually come to understand the mysteries of God. But God has revealed himself to a lot of very unimpressive people like you, Corinthians, I wonder if that hurt their feelings when they read that. But it makes me happy. Aren't you glad God reveals himself to unimpressive people like us? I think maybe, though, what Jesus had in mind, especially, is what he's going to get to at the end of this little section. Look again at verses 23 and 24. We'll come back to these in a moment. But he says, turning to his disciples, he said to them privately, the disciples are the little children. Disciples of little children. That should be very encouraging and also humbling. To be a disciple of Jesus is not to be a person who has it all together. Can we admit, church, that we do not have it all together? I stand in front of you as a person in great need of forgiveness and grace every day of my life. To be a disciple of Jesus, a child of God, is just to be a person who comes with humble, desperate need to God and puts your trust in Him. The disciples, he calls little children... He says, blessed are you, are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see. In other words, the wise men like Solomon in the Old Testament 
And the prophets, like Isaiah in the Old Testament, even Moses, even Elijah, longed to understand what the disciples were seeing. All of their God-inspired search for wisdom and truth, all of their visions gave them a little distant glimpse of God's coming salvation. But it was hidden. It was hidden because the reality that God is revealing to his disciples about the joy and the love of the Holy Trinity and about the triumph of God's grace is the kind of knowledge that can never be achieved by human effort. It's the kind of knowledge that no amount of moral striving or spiritual searching can win for you. The reality that Jesus is giving his disciples is a gift that can only be received as a gift. Now, if you happen to be smart, a few of you are scholars, I'm sure. If you happen to be really smart and really learned, that doesn't mean that you're disqualified. It just means that if you want to know the deepest, most important things you could possibly know, you just have to become like a child. Have to become like a child in your heart. God wants to give to you this gift freely. And let's come back again to those words. He says, this was your gracious will. This, this little phrase could be translated, this is your gracious will or this is your good pleasure. And both are true. He's saying, God, Father, it makes you happy to give to people a free gift that they could not earn. Namely, knowledge of you and knowledge of me and salvation in our presence. Then in verse 22... Jesus continues rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, but he's talking to his disciples. And what he says here is possibly the most important theological sentence in the Synoptic Gospels, which means Matthew, Mark and Luke. So what I'm saying is pay attention to verse 22. Let's look at it again. Jesus is talking. He says all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Before we start unpacking that verse, I just want to ask you something. What are the questions that are driving your life? What are the questions you're always asking? We're all questing, we're all searching for something, and, and one way to get at what we're searching for is just to think, what are the questions that drive me? One of my old teachers was a really godly Dutch biblical scholar named Willem van Gemmeren, and that's one of the things he said is, are the questions that you're asking big enough to keep your soul busy in a good way for the rest of your life? Some people, by tragic necessity, are, are driven by survival questions. God shows so much compassion for us when just by necessity, what we're asking is, what's the next meal I'm going to eat? How can I be safe? Millions of people in the world like that. And the Bible speaks of God's love and compassion for such folks. And many in our community wrestling with that. Though we are blessed to, to live in a time and in a place where most of us can get access to those daily life necessities. And nonetheless, even if we have those, many of us are really driven by these kinds of basic questions. How can I get rich? 
How can I get people to like me? How can I avoid pain and be very comfortable? Some people live for nobler questions that are about searching for goodness and truth in the world. They might be wrestling with, how can we feed the hungry? Does that sound like a good idea, church? To feed the hungry? I was expecting more consensus on that. I'd say it's a good idea. How can we establish a more just society where everybody can thrive? What about that? You want to do that if you can? I would love to. How can human beings find peace and purpose in the face of our inevitable death? Those are nobler questions, but I would suggest to you those questions are still too small. You you could spend... I'm not saying we shouldn't ask those questions, but you could spend the rest of your life working on those questions. And, and maybe, probably not, but maybe you would figure out the answer to some of them. But here's the thing. If you feed the hungry, they're still going to die and you're going to die. And then what? Not saying we shouldn't feed the hungry. We should do that, too. But I'm just saying. Maybe we need to also ask some bigger, even deeper, more fundamental questions. If you would like a question or two. That will give your life meaning for the rest of your life and will contain within it all the other important questions. I have a suggestion for you. Does that surprise you? Here's my suggestion. Spend the rest of your life on this question. Who is God? And on a related note, who is Jesus? You could spend the rest of your life on those two questions. Your soul was made to quest after those two questions. And if you spend the rest of your life on those two questions, God is going to draw you deeper into his heart of compassion for people. You're actually going to end up caring a lot more about establishing a just society and caring for the vulnerable and meeting the real tangible needs of people. But it's going to be rooted in something real and deep that transcends death. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Why did I pause to do that little thing? Because what I'm trying to say to you is that in Luke 10, Jesus of Nazareth speaks one sentence that has some of the most important words that have ever been spoken and answered to those two questions. So we should pay attention to verse 22. Amen, church. All things have been handed over to me by my father, says Jesus, my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Let me just point out a few things. We can't exhaust everything that's in here. But first, Jesus calls God my father. And you may or may not have noticed that this is unique. That other people don't in the Bible don't talk like that. The great prophets don't talk like that. The apostles don't talk like that. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to call God our father. Because through our union with Jesus, if we trusted in him, we've been adopted into the family. And we know the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as our father. So the apostles are always talking about God, our father and God, the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you read through your New Testament, but uniquely of Jesus, it is true that God, the Lord of heaven and earth is his father. My father, he says. And if we're, as we're wrestling with what does that mean? Then we've really got to wrestle with the statement that he makes that only the father knows who the son is. That's a bold statement. 
Only the Father knows who the Son is. And here's a very bold statement. Only the Son knows the Father. Now, to fill the full weight of what Jesus is saying, when he says only the Son knows the Father, he's identifying himself as the Son. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son and only I know the Father. And the scripture teaches that only God knows God. Think about that for a second. If you want some verses, I don't have time to read them all. John 1, 18. John 6, 44 through 46. Romans 11, 33 through 34. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. 1 John 4, 12. All these texts say only God knows God. God is infinite. No finite mind can grasp him. Let, let me read to you, if you haven't made the connection here, what this means, let me read to you what one ancient Christian teacher said about this phrase. Cyril of Alexandria wrote this. The mind of creatures is not capable to comprehend the manner of the divine substance, which passes all understanding, and his glory transcends our highest contemplations. Translation, what does that mean? It means... Created finite beings like us can't understand the majesty of God. But then he goes on to say, by itself only is known what the divine nature is. Only God can understand and comprehend the nature of God, the essence of God. Therefore, the father by which he is knoweth the son. The son by which he is knoweth the father. No difference intervening as regards the divine nature. But if the son was created... How could he alone know the father or how could he be known only by the father? What this ancient Christian saint is saying is the statement that just came out of Jesus lips means that he is the uncreated eternal son of God. It means he's the uncreated God knower begotten of his father before all ages. God of God, light of light, very God of very God begotten, not made being of one substance with his father. He's God it means Jesus is God. Jesus knows the Father, he says, and he says that he uniquely can reveal the Father to anyone whom he chooses. Like what he says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By the way, one theologian commented, all the theology, all the Christology of John's gospel is right here in Luke 10, 22. The only way to fully know God is through Jesus, which is not... Denying that there's not true knowledge of some important things about God in other faiths and in other religions. We don't have to deny that. As a matter of fact, Christianity has always taught lots of the world's religions know true things about God, the creator who is good and just and all powerful. But he's saying that God came among us as a person personally in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, the word who became flesh to uniquely reveal God to us so that in Christ we can know God in a way that is not available anywhere else. If we want to know who God is, we must look at Jesus and listen to Jesus. That's what it's saying. So everybody say it's all about Jesus. One of the most important truths we need to understand that's making Jesus happy. He's still rejoicing in the Holy Spirit here is that he says the father has handed all things over to his son. I want you to underline those two words, all things, and just get happy while you think about those words. All things, all things. Now, we need to recognize when he says the father has handed all things over, 
There is one sense in which everything has always already been in the hands of Jesus. And there's another sense in which something new is happening now. How how has everything always already been in the hands of Jesus? Well, John chapter one calls Jesus the word, the logos of God. And it says this about him. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was God in the beginning before creation. Then it says he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made everything that has ever been created. That's what it's saying. Or Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says this about Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. What does that mean? Long before the Virgin Mary became pregnant. Thousands of years before that, back, 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 before there's. I keep going back before there's humans on earth, before the universe existed, before anything besides God existed. The son, the word existed with his father. God existed as father, son and Holy Spirit. And everything that the father created, he created in and through and for his son, who is co-eternal with his father. If you're having a hard time tracking with some of the big words. That I'm using. That's why I said spend the rest of your life on these questions. We can't do it all in one sermon, guys. It's also why God gave us podcasts so you can listen to the sermon on repeat if you need to this week. Jesus has always been creative Lord over his creation. All things have been in his hand. But sin broke the creation. And now, as St. Athanasius put it some 16 centuries ago, North African Christian writer As by the word, all things at the beginning were brought into being. So when the word became flesh, he should restore all things in himself. What it's saying is the one who created all things and who has always been Lord over all things has come among us to rescue and redeem and set right all things. Everybody say all things. What does this mean? Practically, Jesus is saying. I am the son who has always been with my father and I have come here to you to reveal God to you and to set everything right. All that stressful stuff Ecclesiastes was talking about. I came to fix it. I came to fix it. What does it mean? It means Julian of Norwich was right when she wrote in her little prayer closet. All shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. I want to pause for a second again. Take a deep breath. Think. Because we're humans living in a world marked by sin and death, you came here with heavy burdens. We all have different burdens and we try to share them with one another. But Proverbs says the heart knows its own grief. Meaning I I can't ever fully understand what you're going through. You can't fully understand even what the people you're living with are going through. We all have our own burdens. But I want you to understand the import. Jesus is saying to you and to his disciples, I came so that you can know God and so that every wound of your heart will be healed. Let it sink in. He said all things, all of your deepest desires will be satisfied in me if you'll trust me. All of your pain and all your fears, all of your sin and guilt and shame and trauma... It's temporary. I'm going to set all things right. 
So if we ask the question, who is Jesus? He's in verse 22. These are his lips. It's how Jesus talks about himself. And what he's taught us is that he is the absolutely unique son of God who eternally dwells with the father in the joy and love of the Holy Spirit. He alone can reveal God to us because he alone has eternally and essentially known the father. And he is the Lord and heir of all things that will set everything right. That's who he is. And then in verses 23 through 24, he says to his disciples, you are blessed to see and hear what you see. And that word blessed means filled with life. He's saying how happy you ought to be, how joyful you are, how blessed you are. Because what Solomon and David and Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets of old long to see, you see what they long to hear, you hear. And church family, I want you to get this today. By giving us the scripture, God has allowed us to see what they see, to hear what they hear. How blessed are you? God has given you a glimpse of things that Moses longed to glimpse. That's true of you. Isn't that an amazing thought, church family? What is God revealing to you? He's revealing himself. He's revealing the gospel. He's revealing the only hope for your sin. These verses reveal to us that the hidden secret center of reality that holds all things together and that is drawing all things to itself is the joy and love of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Death is temporary. Injustice and oppression are temporary. Deception and lies are temporary. Chaos is temporary. All of the things that we hate are light and temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory Jesus has prepared for those who trust in him. These verses mean for us we cannot achieve salvation for ourselves. You can't rescue yourself. But God came to rescue people who humble themselves like little children. That makes me want to get in the little children line. Amen, church? Who wants to say, I can't save myself. I'm a little children. Save me. Okay, that's... That's the invitation here. That's the invitation. God is inviting you to share in his joy. That's what the text is revealing. All those laments in the Old Testament. How long, O oh Lord, when will you save us? How are you going to save us? They were looking forward to Christ. God is inviting you to share his joy. Now, I've been using this word joy the whole sermon. Some of you are thinking, but what is joy? What is joy? I'm so glad you asked because I almost just ended my sermon and sat down. I'm so glad you asked. Aren't you glad they asked? You would have been devastated if I stopped preaching right now, wouldn't you, church, before talking about the meaning of joy? Listen, church, joy is what happens when a lover comes to possess what he or she loves and longs for. Love, by its nature, seeks to be united to the beloved. What we call desire is the mix of pleasure and pain that happens when a lover remains distant from the beloved one. All of our human loves are salted with this pain. None of our unions are ever perfect. Don't look at your spouse right now if you're married. It's okay, you can look at him if you want to. None of, none of our unions are ever perfect. None of our friendships are perfect. 
Our relationship with God is not perfect, or the Psalms wouldn't keep saying we hunger and thirst for your presence. Paul wouldn't say, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Desire is the mix of pleasure and pain that we feel when we long to be united to that which we love, and yet remains in some sense distanced from us, or at at best imperfectly united to us. Perfect joy is what happens when a lover is finally at rest in union with the beloved. Like some of you are craving lunch right now, you feel desire, but later you're going to eat it and you're going to feel joy. Amen? But that's not a perfect joy. You'll get hungry again. Perfect joy is what happens, if we're going to say this better, when our deepest love, our final end, that which we're most made to enjoy, finally becomes ours. And we're one with it. God has eternally known and loved and been at rest with God's self. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. God is eternal, perfect love and joy as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Moreover, God already sees us in perfect union with God and with one another as we will be for eternity in a renewed creation set right. Don't you wish you could see that, church? You don't have to wish you could. You can set your hope on the promise that you will. God, thus, is already joyful, but we are wayfarers. We're sojourners on a journey towards home. So we hunger and thirst with desires, seeking satisfaction everywhere, often not getting what we want, but when we do, finding that our thirst is not quenched. Because we can only finally be satisfied by union with God himself. So when Jesus says, trust in me and take up your cross and follow me. He's saying is, come on a pilgrimage, wayfarer, follow me, be faithful to me, even unto death. I know you're tired, but come to me, everyone who's weary and heavy laden, and I will lead you to God where you will find rest. For your souls. That is our destiny. If we continue on the path of discipleship, we trust in the Lord by grace. The promises he will give to us the experience of being perfectly united with God, our beloved and with everything else we've ever desired in God. That is perfect creaturely joy. That's what we're made for. And Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and rise again so that you could enjoy that forever. That's the good news of the gospel. And that good news comes with an invitation, which is very simply, be like a little child today. Be like a little child. And that that can mean being honest with God. We don't have to fake, we don't have to front, nothing but sinners in here. Amen, church? Some of you came in here feeling... So much the sorrows and struggles and boredom and doubt and sin of life that you weren't feeling this passage. And you may still feel that way after I did my best. But the the truth is, that's perfectly fine. Because as a little child, we come to a loving father. And you can say, God, I'm filled with doubts and I'm filled with pain. But heal my heart, I pray. Forgive my sin. Let me taste your joy. I want to taste your joy. And your loving father will hear. I invite you to stand.
In a moment, we're going to respond to God's word by singing one more song of worship. But as we stand, I want to invite you again to be still. To be still. I don't want to move on. I don't want to move on too quickly. If you would put your hand in a posture of receiving, just where you are, I just encourage you to come to God. Talk to him about your sorrows. Talk to him about your shame. Talk to him about your struggles, your burdens, your fears, whatever you're feeling. And say, God, I want to taste your joy. Speak to him. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. If there's anything in your life that you're holding onto that he wants you to let go of so that you can taste his joy. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your great grace. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. Forgive our sins, Lord. Lord, I know that there's people here that are, their hearts are stirred and awake and alive to you right now. They just want to pour out their praise to you. Rejoice in the Holy Spirit like Jesus did. I know also there's people here who are very weary and heavy laden and burdened by life. So we don't want to be fake. We just want to come to you and be real about where we are and say, God, help us. You're our only hope. Jesus, help us. Heal us. Forgive us. Let us taste your joy. And I pray even as we sing now that the spirit of God in our midst would be setting us free to rejoice, to rejoice in the joy and rejoice in the rejoice in the gospel. Before we sing, I just want to say again, if there's anybody who's here and you're spiritually searching, but what I'm saying feels distant and you really don't know if you're right with God. The the gospel is just God's invitation to say, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, he'll forgive you. And that can be the beginning of your journey with God. And uh, I would love to talk to you about that. Any of the pastors and many of your friends here who are Christians would love to talk to you about that if you want to take that first step on the journey. But you can begin right now where you are, just pouring out your heart to God, saying, I want to know you. Only you can satisfy. Again, God, we ask that you would inhabit our praises and reveal yourself to us now as we sing in Christ's name.